you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Alright. You were a good guy. Good job. Woo! I don't know, it sound like it, but it was. Let me get the kids in here. <laughs> hey, we got all kinds of room in here, so let's all go in here. Yeah, no, you get... Alright ladies, Mr. Cole's playing. We should have two we should have two fellowships here. One for the woman out in the kitchen, right. one for the guys in here. What do you mean should? I think we do. <laughs> Not the way it's looking right now anyway. That's been going that way for a while. It... <laughs> I... Father God, we just thank you that for the mercy and the grace and the love that you show to each and every one of us. And how you, you've held us by the hands as we went through hard times and through good times. Sometimes when we didn't even know we were walking with you and, and you, you were still there with us. And we thank you for it. We thank you for your love. We thank you for just the guidance that we need to continue to walk mm -hmm. along and for the, the, just the grace that you've given us to, to bless us as, as we walk with you. And we thank you that we're in the last times and that we're one day closer to being with you than we were yesterday. Mm -hmm. uh, and Lord, um, you are so good and we we thank you lord that that this nation for the election coming coming up we thank you that you work it so that the people that you want to be uh, elected into office uh, get elected and the people you don't want there get defeated in christ's name amen amen, amen. so we're in hebrews chapter 8 and verses 1 through 5 now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, the one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. And we went over this our, you know, last week, that we have such a high priest, the one that serves in the power of a never-ending life. A minister in the holy places, or as the King James says, a minister of the sanctuary, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. The writer of Hebrews is going to develop this more as we progress. So, you know, the, the, this last section of the book of Hebrews is this continual laying out of the type, which is the tabernacle system, and the anatype, which is Jesus and the spiritual sanctuary and the sanctuary in heaven. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, and thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. This is part of the internal evidence that tells us that this epistle was written before 70 A.D. Because in 70 A.D., the, the whole thing. The temple was destroyed. Right, the temple was destroyed. Um, I still have an audio reverb going on here, but I don't know why. So, um, he serves in the sanctuary God set up. Then, priests offer sacrifices. He has to offer something. But then it says, well, but where is he? Where is our priest serving? He's in heaven. So here is here's another piece of um, 
mind-stretching understanding of the blood of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus, what sacrifice did Jesus offer? Himself. That was His sacrifice. Where did He offer it? On earth. And yet we're going to see as we continue reading this epistle that um, the heavenly things had to be cleansed with better things than animal blood. Which means that He carried His blood into the sanctuary in heaven. Well, how did He do that? In His resurrected body. So, the blood of Jesus that covers the mercy seat for you isn't a scab. It's the living blood and the resurrected Lord who stands as your advocate in front of the Father, and in front of the Father is the Father's advocate to you. It's living. It's real. It's alive. It's Jesus. Well, I, I understood that he didn't have blood as, as uh, when up in heaven as he says he's born in flesh, but not blood, but you, he carried the blood. So, so what we were taught at, body, yeah, what we were taught, because in our former association, we well, were taught that, about that, yeah, but, but that's where we learned it. And, and, and it was based on that language of, you know, a ghost has not flesh and bone as you see me have. Right. And so those teachers uh, made a point of saying, see, he didn't say flesh and blood because he no longer had blood because he was no longer soul life. And so because we equated soul life with blood and there was this real misunderstanding about spirit, soul, and body, they came up with a doctrine that essentially implied that the resurrected Jesus had no soul life because the second Adam was made a life-giving spirit. But that's not what Scripture says. And, and the term, the idiom, flesh and bone, is a Hebraic idiom that's equivalent to our English idiom of flesh and blood. When you, okay. when you say bone, you include the marrow. When you include the marrow, you include the blood. Okay. And when he was resurrected as an as a, as a ever-living human, he was completely human. But he shed his, all the blood went out of his body on the cross. He shed all of his blood. Yes. So, how, well, I mean, I'm, I'm yeah. not arguing, I'm trying to understand. Right, so think of it this way. Someone who's cremated had their whole body and bones burnt to ash, and yet when they're resurrected, they have bones and body, right? Yes. Blood's no different. Okay, okay. Make sense? All right, yes. All right. right. Okay. So, not to get going on cremation, but um, anyhow, he serves in heaven. There are already priests on earth. Jesus serves in heaven. There's so much to talk about in these, just these five verses in this chapter, and then you get into nine and ten. Anyhow, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make it make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So when Moses walked up the mountain, God had a blueprint review with him and said, This is how you have to make this structure. 
So the structure that they fabricated, this beautiful tabernacle, that involved the entire community, that involved the wealth they pulled out of Egypt, that involved free will offerings that were, were so super abundant that they had to say, hey, stop, we got enough. And made this tent that, you know, who knows, today would have cost hundreds of millions, to, a tent, <laughs> millions of dollars, if not hundreds of millions, gold-covered boards and, and pillars and, and the silver and the brass and the implements and um, the weaving alone. Anyone ever watch the Antiques Roadshow? You know, can, can you imagine if someone pulled out of their attic one of the, you know, one of these woven carpets with seraphim and golden thread oh weaved goodness. into it? How much do you think this is worth? Well, at auction, I think we might be able to get half a billion. You know, I mean, it's a tent. What a tent, right? What a tent. So now, <clears throat> our God was a nomad. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. So, in, in instruction or in reference, the structure that's being referenced is the tabernacle. So, a subtitle for this, I've, I've, I've titled this sharing like three times already today. So, <laughs> the, the, minister, the, the, the minister in the heavenly places was the original title, but then the subtitle of that was Models of Meditation. And I thought, really what we're going over is, is I thought, um, I think still, uh, you know, shadows and examples and patterns. And, but it's still models of meditation. And when I say models of meditation is ways of engrafting scripture into your soul. And, and then, by extension, ways of fully assimilating information. So, structurally, I mean, just biologically, your brain has a very limited capacity for short-term memory. Things that are held in your cerebral cortex on the outside, the things you learn, like I just learned your name, and to keep that name, you can say it to yourself, and say it to yourself, and say it to yourself, but there, there are ways that you can increase the associations of a fact that increase the footprint and pattern and then increase the possibility of that information getting dumped down into the hypothalamus and into the, into the structures of long-term memory. The structures of long-term, organically, I'm speaking where I'm not talking about the, you know, the soul plays its message across the organic brain. So, you know, think of, think of uh, the soul as the, as the radio programming. I do computers, but then I'm like, you know, radios is much more cooler, right? No. All right, Tom. <laughs> so, uh, soul is kind of like the actual programming, not like computer programming, but like we're going to have a podcast now, and we're going to have a top 40 song, and that's the programming, right? And the equipment that that's broadcasting across is your radio. It's got a tuner, got two bands, you've got, well, you know, if you have a digital radio, now you've got three plus, if you're not on Sirius. Anyway. Um, and then you have different stations, you know, you, you tune it in. But all those tuning things, that's hardware. That's your brain. So the hardware of your brain has limited capacity to retain new information. Brand new information, short-term memory, limited capacity. Um, 
and I, I, I had the figure, but I, it was in my short-term memory, and I've lost it. <laughs> okay, now, here's a cool factoid. The estimation of, of the um, depth of memory in a human brain, long-term, uh, taps out at approximately a thousand years. A day's storage in your brain. I just think that's cool. That's just a little cool factoid. Where did I get that factoid? It's on the it's on the uh, neuroscience shelf over there. But but that's the that's the that's the estimate of you know after that well something has to dump out before something else can layer on. Now we experience that anyway, right? A whole bunch of stuff dumps out in a regular lifetime while new stuff layers on, you've got to be reminded. And then memory is a construct. Memory isn't fact. Memory is a construct. So um, when it comes to Scripture, there are various ways and means of engrafting that word in your heart. Now one of the most common ways that I am understood or I've heard or been instructed is, is you know, whenever I've been uh, admonished, uh, encouraged, or even mandated to memorize scripture, it has, it has been the rote method. You got to read it. You got to read it out to yourself. You got to memorize. You got to say it over and over and over and over like a line. And I think about that and then I, I, I think about, um, you know, the brief period of time I had in the performing arts. And, and memorizing scripts. So I was, in, uh, I was in two plays as a teenager, two extensive plays, and um, I not only had my lines down, I knew my other actors' lines. But how did we know those lines? Well, there was, there was some rote going on, but there was much more involved in that. There was, I read it, I said it, I heard it, they blocked it out, we walked it through, we interacted it, we performed it, we did... So now I've got body mechanics, I've got visual, I've got audible, I've got sensory, I've got all kinds of different indicators that are, that are bringing these... Oh, he said that, and then that's my cue to say this. I'm in this position on stage, and that's what's happening here. And so then that begins to drive that into an innate, you know... Um, kind of a thing. Well, it's a crass example, but that process isn't much different. Because you're, you're working with the same capacities, right? You're working with the same organism, the same hardware. How you remember. Memory on a biochemical level is a cascade, uh, a synapse pattern, where a certain triggers happen, you know, a, a, a certain grouping of, of smell synapses fire off and they're tied together through a circuit to another one. Oh, that rem I smelled that when this happened in my life and that emotion ties into something else. And so long-held, long-term memory turns up to be a self-replicating synapse cascade. It's a pattern. It's not a living thing, it's just a pattern. So, uh, are you with me so far? Kind of, kind of a little bit. Okay. <laughs> All right. Because I'm talking about scripture, 
And and so I, I want to develop this a little bit, but I want I want you because I'm gonna go go through this kind of an exercise with you a little bit in terms of different ways of just thinking through scripture. Because as you're meditating on scripture and you're thinking through them, you are interacting with the Holy Spirit, and then He He begins to reveal other things to you. And now these these scriptures take on a new life and a new memory. And they go beyond just the words on a page. If all I know is what the verse said, oh, I, I've got the Word of God in my heart, I can recite, you know, Matthew 4.1. I can recite Romans 10.10. 10. That's good. That's not bad. But just because you could recite it doesn't mean it's in your heart. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Just because you memorized it doesn't mean you necessarily meditated on it. You know, you, you found a way to drive it into long-term memory, but did you process it? And it's how we, how we process the information that drives that information down. You may be familiar with different things like, um, like a memory castle, uh, different uh, ways of remembering things where you store information in a visual field. So if you're studying something and you pick something you're highly familiar with because you live with it, so you live in your house. And so then you take the information and you say, well, then I go into my bathroom and the first thing I do in the bathroom is I look inside the medicine cabinet. Inside the medicine cabinet is, you know, um, uh, you know, w whatever, the, the, the transitive law of equality. <laughs> and so you're there and you go through the transitive law of equality. And you go into the, you, so then from, from there I go into my, and I change my clothes in my bedroom and in my top drawer is. And so now, now you have an additional flag in your brain for where the information is. You've tied two things together. And then Tim's nodding his head. Like, have you ever done this? You know, kind of a deal. This is this is a this is a way of doing rapid learning. Is yeah, you, you, in my top drawer, there's no socks. There's no socks, right? <laughs> yeah, no, there's just socks. I don't know about the transitive law. It's not there. Yeah, but, but yeah, and the transitive law of equality is not there. Aspirin <laughs> and codeine, not the same thing. Okay, so <laughs> um, if you've seen like these. Uh, these mentalists or memory experts, you know, where they, they, they're, they're performing for a crowd and they go and they just talk to like 20 people, get everybody's names. Then they, then they tell everybody their name. 20, how do you do that? How do you do 20 names? And then they tell you, you know, you come up with a story. You know, so his name was, uh, you know, John Chadwick, I think, of a candlestick. And, you know, so he's on fire. He's got a candle on his head. And the guy's telling the thing, I'm thinking, about, I, I've lost the story, let alone gotten the name. So it's, it's counterintuitive, but it actually works. Because then as you go through the story, uh, you, you remember how it goes. My fifth grade teacher, my first uh, English teacher, fifth grade teacher, her, her name was Holman. And the reason I remember is, like, I, we, mom signed me up for class, you know, so, so we moved from Spain and signed me up for class. And, and uh, I still draw this way, you'll see it. But um, then she asked me, you remember your teacher's name? I said, yeah, her name's Holman. She said, well, how do you know? I said, well, I wrote it down. Well, I couldn't, I couldn't write English. She goes, let me see it, you know. And so I showed it to her. It was a, it was a stick figure with a circle around it. The whole man. Whole man. <laughs> I still remember her name. And when I say Mrs. Holman, I see that, that silly little illustration. Okay? All right. <laughs> well, whatever. All right? <laughs> Hopefully this all comes to light. <laughs> so, this tabernacle, and by extension... The temple. So here's the first thing about meditating on Scripture. You can study the tabernacle, but then understand that the temple, anything you learn about the tabernacle, transfers to the temple and then amplifies. The difference between the temple and the tabernacle was, 
in primacy, the tabernacle was God's idea. Moses goes to the mountain and says, God says, you build the tent and you build it this way. Moses had a place he called the tent of meeting outside of the camp where he would go and the Shekinah would come down. Remember Joshua, the son of Nun, would stand there and guard. It was, and, and then God said, no, 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 no. You build it, you build it like this, you put it in the center of the camp. Not outside the camp, you put it in the center of the camp. And this is how you do all these things, okay? God's idea. The temple, whose idea? David's, David's idea. Huh? Yeah, David's idea. God said, I never asked for a house. The whole time I've been walking with you, I've been in a tent. Who said build a house? But, he said he wants to build a house. Okay, no. You can't build a house, but I'll let your kid do it. Good idea, let's do it. <laughs> and I think that's just one of the neat things about our Heavenly Father, you know? And like, okay, I'll go with it, you know? <laughs> Maybe he had the idea and he gave it to David. And just well, I, your idea. I, okay. I'm not. Yeah, I, I'm not by any means saying that it, it took God by surprise. I'm just saying that you know, you look at all the revelation prior. God's not saying build me a stone temple. He never said that. Matter of fact, when 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 the prophet said, yeah, do whatever, and God said, at what time did I ever ask for this? I didn't ask for this. You know, but David had a dream. He wanted to honor God. God said, okay. You know, so so they did it. So so all these patterns, when you read about the temple and the tabernacle, they are all expressions of the spiritual realities of God. Uh, they are prophetic signatures of Jesus Christ and who He is and what He came to do. And every sacrifice, every every spilt blood, everything is a lesson about the fullness of what Christ did. So in one respect, you could say, well, I don't need to bother with the details. I mean, I know Christ, so why do I need to know all this? But then, when you dive into the details, you start finding out all that Christ did. See, as Christians, we are primarily educated and comfortable with the sin sacrifice. So when it comes to blood sacrifices and the shed blood of Jesus Christ, in my view, what we, what we generally think of is, well, the forgiveness of sins, right? right. The forgiveness of sins. Oh, yeah. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. Mm -hmm. But we don't talk a lot about burnt offerings. We don't talk a lot about bank offerings. We don't talk a lot about, you know, all of the five major offerings, the one we center on is essentially the guilt offering, the sin offering. The sin offering is one where, where you've sinned, and then you become aware of the fact, you know, you didn't sin on purpose, you sinned. Then you become aware of the fact that you're in sin, then you offer a sin offering. Then there's a trespass offering. Then there's a peace offering. Then there's a thanksgiving offering, the fellowship offering, the burnt offering. So, well, Jesus is all of these. And the shed blood doesn't stop at covering your sin. It carries you all the way into full fellowship with God. See, we apply the blood... To be free from sin, but we forget about the living blood that draws us near to God, the one that comes to full fellowship. Sin offering is the start of the sacrificial process. It's not the end of it. It's the start of it. And so that, but somehow that's where we get stuck, is at the start of things, and not at the end of things, where we're sitting down in full fellowship with our Father having a meal, which is a thank offering, which requires blood as well. He spilled it all.
right? So it's important to look at the details is what I'm saying. You know, Christ covers it all. Yes, he does. All of what? <laughs> you know, what's included in my package? <laughs> I, would, I would like to know, you know? <clears throat> Sign up for a, for a vacation. <laughs> it's, just, it's like being, it's like being given a, given a, a, a free trip to the, uh, to the resort, right? And there's a fully stocked fridge at the resort, but no one touches it. No one touches the fridge. Can't have that, you know. You're, well, it costs you, money. you're renting. Yeah, don't, don't, yeah, you know. You're walking yeah, five miles. You're walking car. five miles in a strange city to a Seven Eleven so you can buy snacks and no one touches the mini bar, you know. And then you find out. And I say mini bar because that's what everyone calls it. But you know, the, the, the little the kiosk refrigerator. You know, don't touch it. Don't touch the coffee. And then you check out and you find that was all included and somebody else paid for it. You're like, huh? <laughs> yeah. The details are nice to know, right? Mm -hmm. So. The shadow copy of, of the heavenly things. Well, it's a, it's a short slideshow, but a long teaching. Who knows? The, the, the three words here that I didn't write down. Shadow is not the first one, is it? Um, copy. Copy is the first one. And... Um, Example is the King James. Copy is the English uh, uh, standard version of that. And it's a fancy Greek word that basically means this. Hey, Don, look at that. Okay, that was it. That's the copy. To show under the eye. All right? To show under the eye. It's, it's this uh, uh, Greek word, hupodigma, which is to exhibit... Um, to give a sketchy outline is, is uh, one definition of it. To give a sketchy outline. You ever gotten directions from somebody, you know, where, uh, okay, all right, uh, here's the house, you go down this street, you take a uh, left, you know, remember where the 7-Eleven's at? Well, right there, you want to take a right, and then where you're going is right here. I mean, it's not the scale. There's not even a street down there, but if you're having, you know, do you have directions? Yeah, I got a sketchy outline. We'll get there. We'll get there, right? I, I, I might not. Some might. Some might. But I'm hey, surprised you got your lesson and I do. rights correct. Hey, well, like I'd imagine, you got there. So. And, I, and I do. I got, I got there and I got back, and there were more than three turns. I was, I was pretty ecstatic. So I, I didn't have my standard U-turn today yet. I'm usually good for two U-turns a day, and, and well, one if I'm just going home. But <laughs> I'm not saying I'm directionally challenged, but you know. How do you get to heaven? Yes, I, 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 I was glad the sun was up. That way, I knew which way was up. You know. Uh, anyhow, I can't put this down on wood because it'll melt something. Um, a sketchy outline. Now, models of meditation. So we're we're thinking about an example, a copy. We are, are uh, I mean, you, the age we're living in, it's, it's no big deal to get a copy of something. Matter of fact, we've gotten to the point where legal language has grown to incorporate electronic copies as originals. That electronic copy, a digital copy, a digital representation, pixels that represent print, um, hold the weight of law. Okay? That's, that's spectacular. 
bits of light on a screen you can't grab hold the same weight and cord as an eight and a half sheet of paper with toner or ink on it. Oh, but this toner and ink, it's kind of a strange thing too because this thing was printed because a little laser light heated up the paper in the exact place where it wanted the toner to stick. So this isn't really tight. That's another word we're going to look at, tight. Um, but this is kind of, this is a, well this is the real representation of the uh, shadow or the copy that I had on my screen. This is more tangible because I could take this and I can hand it around. The other thing is really just eyes and O's, right? It's programming. It's just information. Okay? So, this example, um, it's, it's this combination of, of hupo, which is just a, uh, a prefix, a Greek prefix, which means under, okay? Under. And then, um, diakuno, which is to show. So, to, to show under. So now, if you're looking at a word, ways to study scripture, ways to remember things, ways to meditate, and you understand the word you're looking at is, well, it's a combo word. Um, you know, um, subscribe. You know, sub is below, scribe is to write, to write below. When you subscribe to something, what do you do? Well, you kind of sign below, right? <laughs> you sign below. So, uh, so then maybe you want to understand subscribe more. What does it mean to scribe? Well, that means to write. Okay. All right. So to show under. To show under a shadow, a copy. To show under. Um, in our canon, the first use of the Holy Spirit's word. You know, the first time the Holy Spirit in our canon said, "Hey." Use this word, show, is in Matthew 4.8. And in Matthew 4.8, the devil took Jesus to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. I just think that's interesting. To show. Okay? Second use. Um, not second use, but... Uh, a, a, a significant counterpoint to that in the Gospels, right? So that's the first appearance of it in Matthew. Um, this is the first appearance of that show word in John. And it's John 5.20. And it, uh, actually, I think it shows up twice. John 5.20. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel twice. So, so look, at, look at those two different, um, that dichotomy of showing. The devil shows things for the interest of temptation to steal your worship from God to bow down to him. So anybody who's involved... Um, in the dark kingdom, <laughs> employing evil spirit power, what they know and what they're being shown by spiritual forces is for the devil's glory. It's to, it's to engender idolatry in the human and destroy him. 
The Father shows... Now, we have three revelatory manifestation gifts that are in the showing category. Word of knowledge, word of wisdom, discerning of spirits. Those are the revelatory gifts. So, um, miracles and healing are the execution of what's been revealed through a word of knowledge, word of wisdom, and discerning of spirits. You know, so through discerning of spirits, uh, you may be shown that somebody's under the influence of a demon. And then, by performance of a miracle, then you cast the demon out. Does that make sense? Same with healing. You may get a, um, a, a word of knowledge over someone. Hey, they, they, uh, they're dealing with this particular issue in their, in their physical and their soul life, and the reason they're dealing with this is because of this. But I'm, I'm going to show you what I'm doing how I would make this person whole. And then he gives you a gift of faith, and then you speak it out, and then it happens. That's a gift of healing. But that showing, that revelation, is from God to you through the Holy Spirit. And it is always, here's the thing, revelation from God, revelation from your Heavenly Father, is always an expression of love. Now meditate on that for a minute. Because we have reactions when we have a word of knowledge, a word of prophecy. The world's going to end. So-and-so is bound in sin. That person's sick and I know why. Who's sin, Lord? This man or his parents that he's born blind? That's our human reaction. Our human reaction to revelation is as if we're ingesting from the tree of knowledge of good and evil versus the tree of life. We are, we are in our broken humanity predisposed to receive revelation as its fruit from the, knowledge, the tree of knowledge of good and evil versus it being fruit from the tree of life. And if we recognize that God shows the Son the things He's doing because He loves the Son, well, He loves you. You're His Son. Yeah. So, so God's... So knowing that God's showing is an expression of His love. Yes. Okay? Knowing that God's showing... So that when He gives us a copy or an example, it's an expression of God's love. Right? I mean, now this is, this is, not, this is not a huge revelation, right? Because God is love. love. I just think it's always good to remind ourselves of the motivation. <laughs> that if I am motivated like my Father is, I'll be much more prone to intercede and have compassion than confront and accuse. There are times that in love you have to confront, right? There are times where, you, you know, uh, um, I mean, Jesus was, Jesus always loved. You know, you vipers. Uh, <laughs> you know, there are times. Wash sepulcher. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's, there's times you got to confront. So that's, okay, so that's to show, but we're talking about this, this example. Well, um, it's, it's essentially used six times in Scripture and three different ways. Well, that's weird. Not really. Uh, you know, here the Holy Spirit uses this word six times in, in um, uh, one, two, three, four writers and, and uses it in three specific ways. So this... Um, 
we have a copy or we have an example, this, uh, this hupodiagma, it's used with reference to behavioral models. Like, um, hey, you should do it like that guy. That's, that's, a, that's a copy. That's a, that, that person's behavior is um, an example to emulate. That's one way it's used. So Jesus said, okay, I've done this. Like, I've washed your feet as an example of how you should treat each other. Okay? That's a behavioral example. Um, the, uh, James offers up the prophets. This is James 5.10. He says the prophets are an example of suffering and patience. Take the prophets as an example of how it is you walk through suffering with patience. That's, that's, so that behavioral model is one way this, this copy is used. Then um, there is the warning model. You know, like, okay, this is the positive example. You should, you should be like this. Then it's used twice as a warning example. Don't be like that. <laughs> right? Don't behave this way. And that's um, uh, Hebrews 4.11. You know, that, that don't, don't, don't miss the, the, uh, the rest, like unbelieving the example of Israel. Right? Unbelieving Israel. Don't do that. That's Hebrews 4.11. And then uh, 2 Peter 2.6, um, the the warning, the example warning of Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay? So we've got the, the, the positive one, you know, behave this way. We have the negative one, don't behave this way. And then you have this use, which is the sketchy outline. The sketchy outline example. And that shows up here in Hebrews 8.5 and Hebrews 9.23. So, um, since we're in Hebrews, Let's go to 9, uh, 23 real quick. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So, there are real heavenly things that had to be purified by Christ's sacrifice. That alone, I think, is a mind-stretching understanding. That there were things in heaven that had to be purified. Yeah. Okay? Um, heaven is a bit more complex than we generally think of it. <laughs> Thankfully, we understand that that sanctuary in heaven has been cleansed. Okay? So, and we're not teaching on Hebrews 9 and 23 today, but we'll hopefully, God willing, get into that verse at some point. So that is, that's that word, copy. Okay? The next word is shadow. And uh, the, the Hebrew word is, is skia. And this is, this is, I have a um, anyway a close good example. Okay, so it's a shadow of uh, of heavenly things. This tabernacle 
this temple. Now think about the tabernacle and the temple. The tabernacle. You're out in the wilderness plain. And there is this curtain that I think is um, five cubits high, I think. So that's like 15 feet up. White curtain that white curtain that demarks the whole thing. It's capped off in silver. You know, you've got 2,000 cubits between the nearest tent and it. So it's not like it's a, you know, you can walk to a clear field and see this thing. And then sticking above it, you can see, well, the variously translated, you know, badger skins or whatever. There's a very plain covering on the actual tent uh, of the tabernacle. But you can see it sticking over the top. You can see the smoke rising out of the ever-burning altar. And then as you come around that front space, you have this uh, um, blue and, and red and, and purple and white curtain that is, you know, 20 cubits wide to get you inside the court. You walk inside the court, and now the court has this brazen altar, all kinds of activity happening. You have ministers that um, are ministering in clothing that was designed, the clothing was designed for beauty and glory. So you're in your regular traveling clothes and you walk into a place where, where men are serving in linen white clothing that's woven in a way that there are patterns showing up on the clothing. So it's white, but it's, it's, not, <clears throat> it's not sensory deprivation white because it has texture. Okay? And, and they have hats on, they're serving, there's order, and there's a lot of blood. <laughs> and smoke. And fire. And then beyond that, there's this, uh, there's this brazen laver, uh, and it was made from the, from the polished brass mirrors of the women, where they're washing themselves. And now you see the front of the tabernacle itself with its curtain, its door, also tricolored. You're not allowed to go inside. But if the curtain's open and you look in there, what you see are gold walls on either side and coming in a little bit that stand um, 10 cubits high. Okay? And it's, 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 you're looking in, it's a solid gold walls. And then you have this gold furniture sitting there. You have you have the gold uh, table of showbread sitting there. You have the golden altar of incense sitting there. It's on fire. And then the incenses. And then you have <laughs> you have the, the, the gold uh, lampstand with the lamps, seven lamps burning. Okay? The high priest is in his clothing, and his clothing is resplendent in color and jewels. And he's got a crown on his head. It says, Holy to the Lord, a little uh, gold plate here, and his, his hat. Um, and the, all the colors in his robe and his girdle and, and the stones and on his shoulders and whoo! When Herod the Great saw, I forget which high priest it was, but when he looked out and saw the high priest and how good he looked, he had him killed. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I mean that's how good you know dress makes the man kind of a deal. I mean, that's how good this guy looked. Can you imagine the original? Okay, so think of all that. Width, depth, height, uh, color, smell, 
All of it is a shadow of the heavenly things. Now take that into the temple, and the temple, you know, amplifies all that. The wealth, let's put it this way, they stored the tabernacle in the temple, okay? So where it was, it was just the gold, it was acacia boards that they gold-plated and put and made the Holy of Holies out of, uh, oh, in the temple, it was like gold encased. I, I, I've read, uh, read or heard, and one of the reasons why the Romans burnt it to the ground was so they could melt all the gold out of it, <laughs> get every last piece. Uh, the, the construction of this temple, glorious, its height, its width, I mean, the colors, and the uh, it's just beautifully resplendent. A shadow. A shadow. So now, a model of meditation. You're reading Scripture. Scripture talks about a shadow. What's a shadow? Silhouette of an actual object. Right. What, ha what makes a shadow? Light. Light behind it. Right. The light behind the, the real thing uh, casts cast, uh, 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 darkness from, or keeps the light from going through. The shadow is a result of something obstructing the light. Right. Yes. Which, interesting enough, the match, the light from a match won't cast a shadow. Oh, yeah, I heard about that. It's amazing. You strike a match and the light hits it. Uh -huh. All you see is the match for the shadow. Uh-huh, because the light, light powers it, right? Right. Yeah. So, so these are ways of thinking of a shadow, right? A shadow. So here's one of my examples of this. I call this picture um, the shadow family. <laughs> so uh, one day, this is back in 2013, walking around the block with, with my family when we lived at, on Eagle Way. And... Or and I know it's during recovery because I've got, I know this, but can anyone tell me, one, where I am, and two, what I'm wearing? Second to the left. You were the, you, 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 yeah. I don't remember you taking the picture, but I see the hat on your head. Aha. Uh -huh. No. No. So, this is me. Yeah, on the right. Yeah. And that silhouette there is because I have my Bermuda hat on. That's a shadow, though. From the right. From the right, yeah. From the right. Towards the left. This shadow here. <laughs> now, if all you knew about my family was that, first of all, you'd think we were all tall. We wouldn't know very much about you. But we wouldn't know much. Really low in the sky, other one. Yeah. You know, that's my shadow family. Now, all that being said, there's a lot of information in that shadow. How many people? Six. There's actually yeah, six because Heidi's hiding. One, two, three, four, five, six. But there looks like there's some in front of that first one on the far right because there's another arm there. So it looks like seven. So see, we're having a hard time interpreting this information, but you know that there's a group of people there, right? Just count the lights. There's a group of shadows. There's some assumptions you can make. All boys, all girls, or a mix? If you didn't know it was my family, and you were just looking at shadows. You can tell by shape. You can tell by the shape. You know, you can tell some female form in there, some male form in there. Okay. Think of this 
Now you think about think about the, the Torah and how much of the Torah, how much of Exodus is devoted to the particulars of the dimensions, the materials, and the manufacture of the tabernacle. And then think of Leviticus and the particulars of what it means to minister inside that tabernacle. It's a lot of information. Almost two entire whole books of the Bible dedicated to the shadow. Inside the shadow is there that much information. And then you get the numbers in Deuteronomy and you can add to it. And then you get into to, um, you know, Samuel and Kings and all the descriptions of the temple. And so there's a lot of information in there. Okay? But all that information is trying to show you this. Now this is a picture. Now this is not the picture from which the shadow was cast. This is the best correlation I could find between these two pictures. But here's my actual, part of my actual family in living color. Okay? So now, how much more can you tell? Not more. Right? The, and, this, and I say this is shadow and reality, but this isn't reality. This in itself is just a two-dimensional colored representation of a part of my family at one particular point in time. It's not the real deal. You've met my family. It brings home, we see in part. Yeah. This is the temple tabernacle. This is, we see through a glass darkly. What that is pointing through and what we're living with is the reality that's actually in heaven. Now we do have descriptions. Is that a thought or a question? No, I'm good. Oh, you're just, okay, no. you're good. All right. Does this help? So these are ways of thinking. Okay, so scripture begins to talk about a shadow. Then I begin to think, okay, a shadow. But then... Wait a minute, God's the light. And he's showing me a shadow. Well, it might be too bright to look at the real thing. It's backlit. And so in this in this era, in this time, they remember they couldn't look at Moses' face. It scared them. He had to cover it with a veil. So what they could look at is what the light was shining on. Couldn't even look at what the light was shining on. It looked at what, the, what was between the light and them, the shadow. The shadow. Are you with me? Yes. Now, you begin to meditate on that and you think about, there's all kinds of things you can think about because a shadow, how many dimensions does a shadow have? Just uh, one, two. Two dimensions. Oh, yeah, true. So it's got width and it's got height. It's a two dimensional thing. Okay? No depth. No depth. So, in reality, everything that casts a shadow, though, is how many dimensions? Three. It's three-dimensional. So, if I, if I do a shadow puppet, I'm doing a shadow puppet with my hand. My hand has three. Even if I just use a match, as small as it is, it's got three dimensions. It's a three-dimensional object. So, this tabernacle, which... And our reality and existence is actually a three-dimensional place. It's got height, it's got width, it's got depth, it's got all these materials. But in comparison to the real, it is a flat two-dimensional thing. Yeah. What does that tell you about the real thing? It's bigger and better and more dimensions. It's more dimensions than three. 
Simple meditation on scripture. If a three-dimensional object is, is being referred to as an actual two-dimensional object, then whatever's casting that shadow has more dimensions than the shadow itself. God made the natural order for us to understand the things we cannot see. His invisible power and Godhead. He used the word shadow. Skia. Everyone knows what a shadow is. So you are free to meditate on the implications of that revelation. What does that mean? Now, you know, uh, by saying that, I'm not saying you're free to make the first church of the shadowites. No, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is you're free to meditate on them. What are the implications of that, God? Yeah, think about that. You know, um, this this term <laughs> this term shadow. Now, Vincent in his commentary says that um, the Levitical system of worship was a copy of heavenly reality. Then he says. This was pressed into an absurd literalism by the rabbis who held there were in heaven original models of the tabernacle and all of its apputrances. I have no idea why this man would consider that to be an absurd pressing literalism. I think it's an actual, very solid pressing literalism because in the revelation of heaven you see an actual spiritual sanctuary. There is a holy of holies that Isaiah saw. There is a throne of God that Ezekiel saw. There is a throne in heaven that John saw. And it bears remarkable correlations to the shadow. Now, when you look from this to that, that does not look so odd. Right? You can make these correlations. Oh, I can kind of... Oh, that's a family together. You know, if I had the actual, would be great if I if I had the thought. When I was walking, this shadow was so cool. That's why I took a picture. But if I had the thought, um, I would have someone take the picture this way, so we had the real side by side comparison of what cast the shadow, right? So the reality begins to inform the shadow, and then you begin to wonder at the shadow, right? Oh, that's that's neat. Okay, um, right? Yes. Matthew four sixteen. The people dwelling in darkness have seen great light. And for these, those dwelling in the region and, and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. People living in darkness. Why? Because death obstructed the light of God. Death was the thing between light and the light shone past the death and they saw great light. That's exciting. Right? That full revelation is a life revelation because God reveals as an expression of love. So that's, uh, that's his first use. Um, there are other interesting uses that really aren't um, uh, relevant to what we're sharing, like you know the shadow of Peter walking by, <laughs> people getting healed. Pretty cool. Um, but so Colossians, that, God's power was, comes down, comes down from a four-dimensional to a three-dimensional, even to, to the two-dimensional. Amen. Wow. Colossians chapter two. Yeah, you think about that. You know, um, inanimate objects carrying the grace of God's a stretch, right? Anointing oil, prayer cloths, things of this nature. Uh, you, but it's a real thing. You know, I mean, 
Paul handed off his sweat cloths, people got he carried the energies of God in it for that time for, to do what it did. That at least is a tangible thing. A shadow? That's pretty powerful, right? <laughs> that's his shadow. Um, pretty neat. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 16. Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. You know, we need to know these details, but we don't live in the shadow details. We live in these details. And there is a whole press and stream of Christianity that continually wants to press us into having to live in these details. They're the shadowites. Yeah, I mean, you know, if 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 you're not practicing, uh, well, if you're not keeping Torah, you're not really grafted in. That's what I'm. As if the body of Christ hasn't had this argument since the first century, and as if it wasn't resolved at the Council of Jerusalem. Okay, and then Paul says these are a shadow of things to come but the substance belongs to Christ. Now, I was meditating on this today. These are a shadow of things to come. So, uh, okay, so here's my crude representation of Colossians 2.17, okay? So, here's a corner of a building, all right? And you are the observer around the corner. And you're looking that way, okay? And here comes Jesus, <laughs> okay? <laughs> you with me? Mm -hmm. All right. And then, um, you know, let's just—I'll make the light of God blue, heaven, right? Here's heaven, shining light, okay? And then, let me paint for you the feasts and Sabbaths and new moons. It's just a shadow of the thing to come. Here comes Jesus, and the full revelation of God is behind it. And then you can observe only a part of that. You're looking this way, and all you see, if you're just looking at the old covenant, is the shadow He cast. Just shadows of things to come. That's just now. That's just that is my meditation on Colossians two seventeen. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Here is the reality, and the beauty of it is, is that we, by revelation from God in the New Testament, happen to be here. We don't have to be here. That's crude, I know, because I'm not an artist. I'm a writer. <laughs> okay? But they cast a shadow before. Make sense to anybody? Okay? Alright? My, uh, my crude attempt at teaching diagram. Okay. Alright. So that's that shadow. 
So now, pattern. A pattern. You know, see, you make it according to the pattern. God told Moses. See, you make it according to the pattern you saw on the mount. Um, David said that he received the plans by the Holy, the hand of the Holy Spirit upon him in writing. Okay? So when David was laying out the plans for the temple, the Holy Spirit was upon him and he had to write out the description. That's how he got it. Moses got it primarily by revelatory and then he, you know, he, he, he wrote it down and he instructed it. But even so, in that instruction, uh, again, models of meditation, how you think through Scripture, he transmitted measurements and he transmitted materials and he transmitted look. I could task each of you to read those descriptions, and if you were skilled artists to draw up what it was supposed to look like, and I dare say we'd have various versions of what it's supposed to look like. There's not enough information in the script to build it. That required the spirit of wisdom on skilled craftsmen to execute the revelation. Great. It was in coordination with the living God that the shadow copy was made. It, it, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which speak of me. You're looking in the wrong place. This is not to denigrate scriptures, just to say that the written type, ink on page, is not the living God. The living God's the living God, and he can amplify this two-dimensional revelation of ink on paper into something that's fleshed out and living. Does that make sense? Yes. Just meditate and thinking through Scripture. Type. So this type is tupos. Type. Why do we call it type? You know? Because tupos is hard to spell. Right. Okay, it's tupos because it's hard to spell. Uh, the reason why I'm saying this is because, you know, it, it dawned on me a long time ago that... Um, some of my children and probably most of my grandchildren will not know why we say dial the tele dial the number. Why do we say dial the number? I know. Because at one time we had to turn a dial on the phone. Yeah, it was so much fun. It was so much fun. Oh shoot, which number did I just do? Right. So, yeah. Rotary phone had a dial on it. You know? So, how, how many... I've never seen that dial. I understand what that means, you know. A bunch of us old guys were together talking about dropping the dime on somebody. I'm like, what are you talking about? You know? yeah. You're talking about a pay phone. A what phone? <laughs> a public phone. You put a dime in. A what phone? Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, a quarter, depending on what age you were in. Yeah, and uh, um, a public phone? <laughs> it's never it had a quarter attached to it. It's just a phone. Right. One time we had to turn the handle to get to yeah. the operator, and then, uh, uh, oh, we had to turn the and it was a party it line. Was a phone that had a party line, <laughs> and you had to pick up the, the phone and listen to see if somebody was already talking there, uh -huh. and if they were, you had to wait till they finished, and then you could turn the handle to get to an operator. Yeah. Or you just but sat there and listened on your neighbor's eight, conversation. There might be eight people on that line, eight, eight houses, that, and if somebody was talking at a different house, you couldn't use it until they were done. So, a type, this tupos, is a stamp or a scar. So, um, if 
you've ever seen an actual typewriter or actual printing press that's not working through modern mechanisms of image making. You know, it's actually a, a three-dimensional block form that picks up ink and stamps it into the paper. Or a seal or a signet that stamps its negative image into wax, right? Even a statue, which is three-dimensional, is really but a pale copy of the living thing, isn't it? Right. I mean, you can tell more from a statue than you can necessarily from a, from a drawing or a picture, but even so, it's generally just one material. It's three-dimensional, but compared to actually seeing the person move and breathe and live and talk. Right. Okay. Um, so, here's a fantastic... Um, way for you to always remember this understanding of pattern. Okay? And I just... Um, it's not the first time I've studied these words, but there, there are times when you just, you just kind of like, okay, i got to look at this again. And then all of a sudden he shows you something again, and you're like... Or he shows it to you, and maybe it's again, maybe it's not, but it's like the first time you saw it. This is like the first time I saw it. For this word, too close, right? Um, so I'm going to read to you the first and second use of this Greek word in the, in the New Testament. This tupos translated as, as uh, type or, or, or print. Okay? And so you can understand how, how that, that the mark of the thing is less than the thing. Okay? So John... 20 and verse 25. So the other disciples told him, this is Thomas, we have seen the Lord, but he said unto them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. The print of the nails in his hand. That's tupos. Okay? So, back to my shadow family and the reality. The scar on Jesus' wrists are the shadow of all he did to cleanse you from sin. That scar, that print, that mark of a nine-inch nail that hung him on rough wood after he was severely tortured is but a shadow of all he accomplished hanging on the cross. That tabernacle, that temple, and all its Levitical priesthood is nothing but a slight scar that exemplifies the full reality and substance that is Christ. Again, riding two rails here, looking at copies, shadows, patterns, understanding Hebrews, and then thinking through different ways of, of just meditating on Scripture, thinking it through. You know, it's a shadow. What is that? It's a copy. What is that? It's a pattern. So when it comes to interpreting Scripture, um, you have two classes of uh, analogy, if you will, or of prophetic import. One's called symbols. The other's called types. 
So a symbol is one thing used to represent another, like uh, the lamb that's sacrificed is a type of Christ. Okay? So that's a symbol, I'm not a type of Christ, a symbol of Christ. That, that, so that lamb is a symbol, and then that symbol carries through its uses in Scripture. The doves are a symbol of the Holy Spirit carries through Scripture. Okay? Isaac, as an offered up historical figure by his father, Isaac, the beloved child, being offered up, the child of promise being offered up by his father on the altar, is a type of Christ. So in interpreting Scripture, types are historical figures or events that foreshadow or prefigure fulfillment. But the idea of shadow reality carries throughout. Unless I see the print of the nail in his hands. Okay? So, how much greater the actual sacrifice on the cross than the scar it left? The scar it left is just a print of that event, right? Yes. So, Romans 5. And verse 14. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, who is that one man? Adam. Adam is the one man who trespassed. Now, trespassing is sinning willfully, knowing that the law against is there. Like the sign that says no trespassing, when you walk past the sign, you've done what? You've trespassed. It's not like you were walking around in the woods, all of a sudden found yourself on somebody else's property, and they said, hey, you're on my property. That's sin. Once the person says, hey, you're on my property, oh, now you're aware of your sin, you're guilty. That's sin. Trespass is, I know he's got good deer on his property, and I know he's got no trespassing signs, but I'm going to go across that boundary line and poach his deer and bring it over to my land. That's trespassing. Adam trespassed. Um, he was a traitor to the covenant, I think Hosea says. Okay? Um, and death came upon all. Much more have the grace of God and the free gift by grace of that one man abounded. I just read verse 15. Let me read verse 14, the one I want. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, Adam, who was a type of the one to come. Was a type of the one. Adam was a type of the one to come. Adam, perfect man, in perfect harmony with God, king over the earth, to exhibit dominion from the garden over the wilderness God had made, working a plot of land the size of Texas without sweating from his brow. So think of the vigor of his body, the expansion of his soul, named all the animals, the richness of his spirit, fellowshipping with God in perfect harmony, a nail print in Jesus' wrist. Understand that you shall be like Him, for you shall see Him as He is. Isn't you being brought up 
to the measure of what Adam had before he sinned. That's just a shadow. That's just a pattern of the substance that is Christ, and you are a joint heir with Christ of what God intends to bring you to. This is life in the Holy of Holies. This is where the writer to the Hebrews is taking us to a place so expansive, so extraordinary, so marvelous that you have to meditate on it so that it can get into your soul because it is just astronomically mind-boggling. Even the fact that it's four-dimensional, we, we can't imagine what it would be like in, in a four-dimensional place and that's going to be... Yeah, it's, it's going to... It is... And so you have all these dynamics working at the same time because not only is there a heaven of heavens, which is a real place, not only is there a real sanctuary in heaven where angels minister with angelic... They have, they have bowls on earth that they poured out libations. They have bowls in heaven, vials you read about in... in uh, See, every time I read Revelation, I read about vials, I thought about test tubes. It's not test tubes. They're not pouring test tubes out on the earth. They're taking these bowls and they're, they're dumping them down. They're actual bowls. They're actual swords. They're actual horns in the spirit realm. But then there is this other, it's a both and. It's not an either or. There's a both and. You are God's temple. You are God's sanctuary. You are God's multidimensional, full technicolor, all-expressive house that He's living in. You, the body of Christ. Because the substance is Christ. And you are the body of Christ. And so it's, it's, this, it's this both and, this, this spirituality and this spirit realm that God taught us about through the material realm and His loving revelation through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then the rest of the books too. And so that's our first dip, or maybe our second dip, into this section of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. Those ministers serve in a shadow copy. This minister, your high priest, serves in the reality, in the substance, in the true thing, that all of this is just a pale, dark obstruction of the full light and revelation of your loving Father bringing you home to draw near to Him. Amen? Good word. <laughs> oh, thank you, Jesus. I'm moist.